1: We can help people do that while mitigating risk. We can't, we can't remove the risk entirely and that we really want to be, we want to be transparent and we want to help them set realistic expectations about the actual effects of weight loss and, and the realities of maintenance, which are that people can maintain an average of uh, 5% of their net weight loss maybe for up to five years.
2: You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. And this is episode number 196. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back veggie lovers to another fabulous episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today I have with me two coaches that have founded something called comprehensive coaching it's super interesting i know you're going to love this episode before i tell you about them i want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational educational purposes only so it's not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment if you have concern about you yourself your child's body anybody in your family nutrition growth any of those things please consult a health professional So this episode is really great. We got so into it. I really wanted to go on another hour at least, if not more. I think it's going to be very high yield, especially given our topic last week which we talked to Dr. Richa Mithil about BMI and body size and weight and weight loss and those kinds of things. This week, we're talking to Dr. Gabrielle Fundero and Shannon Beer. Dr. Fundero combines her knowledge of nutrition and motivational interviewing techniques to facilitate behavior change for flourishing health embodying a positive relationship with food, body image, and physical activity, as well as sport performance. In addition to her formal training in motivational interviewing and a fellowship in the science of learning and motivation, her experience stems from years of appreciative advising to help undergraduate students identify their unique strengths and obstacles in the pursuit of their academic goals. In addition to her teaching and mentoring experience, she's enjoyed the opportunity to share evidence-based recommendations, international seminars, podcasts, and contributions to magazines and companies. And in her free time, she enjoys hiking, reading, weightlifting, learning, and enjoying the Arizona sunshine. We also have Shannon Beer. She always has one foot in the fitness industry and her head in the clouds. After completing her law degree, she decided to switch paths to become a nutrition professional and explore more of the world. She has spent the last two years in counting, living out of her suitcase and traveling all over the globe. And it's given her a unique perspective on health, fitness, and what it means to live a fulfilling and enjoyable life. She believes that our training and nutrition should enhance our life, not consume it, and that health is about far more than simply aesthetics and performance, although that's nice too. She believes that health is an adaptive, emergent state arising from the synergism of the somato, psycho, socio, and semiotic domains of health, and her coaching practices consider that context. She values truth, strength, compassion, vulnerability, humility, courage, and commitment. Her weeks are a mixture of studying, reading, writing, hiking, traveling, lifting weights, and exploring coffee shops. And most importantly, she loves a good whiskey. So those are our two professionals that I spoke to, and they have developed something called comprehensive coaching, which we're going to talk about in this episode. We're also going to learn about each of their own fitness backgrounds, their own struggles with food, body image. It's very insightful. What intentional eating is. I love this term, intentional eating. How they define being on a diet. What's the difference between being on a diet and dietary restraint? What is a lifestyle change and when is it actually becoming a diet and the spectrum between the diet and the anti-diet or the weight neutral side. So we're going to talk about how to navigate that. We specifically talk about the risks associated with dieting and the importance of seeking informed consent when working with clients that are seeking intentional weight loss. It's a great episode. These ladies are really intelligent. They're smart. And what I love is that they're so thoughtful. They're so conscientious. They've thought this stuff through. And honestly, I'm in awe. I probably will continue to deliberately learn from them so that I can improve my coaching practices and just be more sensitive and open and just know that all of these things, it's a spectrum. It's, it's dynamic. It's not something that is just one thing or another for most of the time. Even body image. We talk about how body image is a dynamic thing. Your body image is different from day to day. So there is so much to learn in this episode. I know you're gonna love it. It's very high yield. You're gonna probably wanna take notes. You're gonna wanna listen to this one more than once because it's dense. There's a lot in it, okay? So thank you, veggie lovers, for being here. Thank you if it's your first time. I'm so glad you found my podcast. And a big thank you to my veterans that are here week after week. I love you. Thank you for being a supporter, for being in the Veggie Doctor Radio fan club. All right, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero and Shannon Beer. Gabrielle Fundero and Shannon Beer, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio.
0: Thank you. For Thank you.
2: So I first found you both on Instagram. I'm not sure how, but you know how things you just start following people. And I just got really pulled in and intrigued when you started advertising your webinar that you were going to do over comprehensive coaching and bridging the gap. And I just got really sucked in because I feel that a lot of us kind of live on one side or another when it comes to ideologies, when it comes to concepts. And you're both trying to find this middle ground and find a way to to, to be between and in the gray of some of these concepts. And I love it. I love it. So I was part of the webinar. I got to learn from both of you. And I just thought that y'all would be great for my audience. So welcome. And I am so excited to dive into some of these concepts.
1: Thank you. I'm glad that, um, that it resonated with you.
2: Yeah. So let's start with The beginning. So, what do you mean by bridging the gap with comprehensive coaching?
1: It initially started as a very practical um, use of the idea of bridging the gap. It was bridging the gap between sort of the um, weight neutral or anti diet perspectives and the more traditional, kind of prescriptive, um, weight focused fitness perspectives. And it um, came about in the first article of what became a series. Um, And I had started writing that article with the intention of trying to point out some similarities, some parallels between uh, intuitive eating and the skill of interoception and auto regulation and the skill of interoception. So in both cases, we're using this skill to identify um, internal cues and respond to those. And I asked Shannon to hop on board and um, as we were writing together, we realized we had like four articles worth of ideas (laughs) to write about Um, and Bridging the Gap expanded to really mean bridging the space between ideologies that might seem at odds and to provide context and education around these concepts so that we can start having more productive conversations because we have a better understanding of what both sides actually mean when they use various terms and and what they like what informs their their perspectives Mm,
2: i love that i'm here for it whenever y'all first started exploring this Was it uncomfortable? How did you feel? Like automatically we're like, oh yeah, this is, you know, we can bring these ideologies together and try to reconcile them or did it feel uncomfortable? Did it feel messy?
3: Yeah, for sure. It was definitely uncomfortable. And I think what sort of motivated us to put something out there in the first place is because of the sort of importance of the implications and the... The way that we felt that the debate was sort of spoiling you know the the potential help that we could offer people, given that there was so much parallel, as Gabrielle mentioned, you know it's like we're kind of disagreeing because we're disagreeing on terms, not because we're disagreeing on what we believe to be effective. Truly, um, there's just so much confusion. So we really wanted to clear that mess up. Um, But also, not only that, with the framework that we're putting out, we're very aware that this is just, you know, the work of... Gabrielle and I coming together you know we've had some ideas we've put it into a framework this it was in the initial stages last year when we first put it out there and we know that whenever you put something out there you're going to get opinions you're going to get feedback and that's actually a a really beneficial thing so we have had um, input from other professionals as well that led us to make changes to the framework and that was sort of uncomfortable to receive but also very beneficial for us and I think that the framework is actually a lot more accurate um a lot more thought out now that we've had input from multiple people and I think that's something that's so sort of beneficial with the social media space is that you are able to reach people from different disciplines so yeah that's been another thing not only sort of addressing the debate but also putting out your own ideas and be like cool someone attack this for me what have I missed tell me how to make it better um which is uncomfortable but also ultimately beneficial yeah no but
2: I mean that's kind of the point too right is so that we can collaborate together because I feel that when we we spend all this time debating and saying no you're right and I'm wrong (laughs) you know it's like we aren't Spending enough time talking about, well, really, we all have the same goal, right? We all just want to help people and we all just want to feel better and live long, healthy lives, like ultimately, right? So how can we work together to do that in a way that produces the least harm and leads to the most joy and well-being? At least that's the way I see it. So um, but let's back up just a little bit. And both of y'all do have fitness backgrounds. So you are in this space, you coach people, but you yourselves have been part of this culture, right? Like the fitness culture and everything. So I'd love to hear more about each of your fitness backgrounds and how these experiences have informed your current coaching practice.
1: Oh, sure. Um, mine is a storied background, um, because I came from, um, a, a, um, a fitness space and like a time in fitness. I'm like, I'm, I'm older than Shannon. By I don't know, like a decade or something. So like when I was in undergrad, I was an exercise science major and I thought I'm gonna own a gym and I'm gonna be a personal trainer and I'm going to have to look a certain way. And so very early on I had internalized these beliefs about what a health professional or fitness professional is supposed to look like. And I didn't fit that stereotype. And so that was sort of the initiation of what became an eating disorder. Um, and I had access to the internet and I was on, you know, forum, like bodybuilding forums, learning about, you know, intermittent fasting and keto and, and all of these sort of fad diets before they had come onto the Instagram space because Instagram didn't exist back then. And I was on my fitness pal when it was very small, it was brand new and like people weren't really macro counting. Um, and over the course of, you know, my undergrad career and through grad school, I still had maintained that belief that, like, I needed to maintain a certain physique. And um, when you add that to, like, the stress of getting a doctorate and, and, like, just life in general, you know, you just, um, it, it, it can manifest, um, I think, pretty rapidly. And it's a sense of, you know, having control and things like that. So um, I went through that process. And then when I, uh, and grad, when I um, defended and I went on to teach, I, I had started uh, experimenting with jiu-jitsu um, because I thought, oh, and okay, now I've got the, the income and the time and I can do like the, you know, cool hobbies. I'm not a grad student anymore. And that connected me with some coaches that said, oh, you should do a, a bodybuilding, like a physique show. And that then sort of reignited a lot of the disordered eating behaviors that I had had, you know, and that I had sought treatment for. Um, and the the next step after that you know i was able to identify like this is um you know the, the i can see the the red flags here and this is going in a direction that's going to be really harmful to me so i transitioned then to powerlifting which is still a weight class sport and still comes with a lot of risks um, and that, to me was eventually, you know, a long way down the line, became a conduit to um, reframing like my relationship with my body and with with weight and um you know what what the scale weight actually means. And um that was gosh, like five years ago or so now. Um, But, you know, I was still in that space of more traditional, like macro-based coaching and amongst people who were, you know, fitness competitors and um, still was oftentimes comparing myself. And um, when I started to learn about intuitive eating, it was really because I was curious about it. And I had seen, you know, these like kind of debates about it. Um, And I wasn't invested in it. I didn't, you know, I I didn't have any strong opinions. I just wanted to learn about it. But then I started to see, oh, hey, you know what, I actually have internalized these beliefs and there is an alternative to macro counting for the rest of my life. And, you know, gosh, I'd really like to help myself and eventually like help other people. Um, establish a relationship with food that isn't taking up their entire lives Uh, because at this point I had um, I left academia and I was starting to travel and, and be an entrepreneur and I thought I don't really want to be like macro counting and, and focusing on that to the extent that I have been for the past several years. Like I want to travel and enjoy life. And, um, I don't want to feel so, I don't want to feel like my life has become so small and not to say that it's like small to be, you know, macro counting or, you know, it's, it can be a very useful tool. Um, but the way that it had shown up for me was just that it seemed to, um, enclose me. And so, um, that was, that's sort of the, my impetus for, um, why I want to help people find alternatives. Um, and that I can really understand too, um, and I can empathize with the folks who have really been harmed and have really suffered and seen other people suffer, um, you know, in that world of, of restrictive dieting and and why they're so passionate about, um, about speaking out against that. And so I can honor that. And then I also recognize that for other individuals, there's not a pathology attached to it, that it's macro counting is like, you know, using GPS and they're like, cool, this is an educational tool. Um, So I also want to, you know, respect their autonomy and really just help people do it in a way that's safe. and, And with the consent that I didn't have, like I didn't realize what the risks were when I started.
2: Yes. Wow. What a powerful story. I would love to know, because I I find all of this fascinating too, based upon my history with disordered eating and body size and all of that. Did you have a point in your, this fitness career, this fitness path? where you were trying to get smaller and then a different point where you were trying to get larger because I've, I'm getting into the more bodybuilding thing and I'm not going to want to be a bodybuilder. I'm just trying to grow my muscles. I'm 42. And I found that my muscles were like kind of wasting away. And I'm like, Oh my God, I need to do this before I get too old. And it's harder. <laughs> and then, but my muscles respond super fast. And now I'm like, Oh, okay. And so my trainer's like, eat more protein and all this <laughs> stuff and my muscles are getting big. And I'm just like, this is fascinating because I spent decades wanting to be as small as possible. And now I'm getting over-focused on growing. So it's so interesting. Did you have that where there was times when you're like, I want to get really small, but then there was times like, I want to get big.
1: Oh yeah, I definitely felt like I was oscillating all the time that I would get to a place where I would say, "Oh, I feel like flat, you know, or just like I haven't been utilizing my body and I can feel that, you know, there's like I'm I'm missing like my strength." And so I would, you know, want to like really go ham and Um, I think like over the past couple of years, probably, especially since the pandemic and everything, and I've had to like totally reframe my relationship, even with lifting because I wasn't going to gyms, um, that now my focus is more on really like how I'm feeling, you know, if I've been very sedentary, my work-life balance is off, then I miss the feeling of like capability. I miss going out and having my walks in the morning and I miss lifting and feeling strong and feeling, um, you know, athletic. And so that's like my, it's, it's kind of like this shift to how I'm feeling and, um, and, and like, you know, the way that my that my clothes fit and whatnot that doesn't like track in the same way anymore. I'll be like, Oh, if these pants feel tight, like oh, I dried them, you know? <laughs> so it's like the, what's, what has meaning to me now is so different um, than, than what, then even just, yeah, just a, a few years ago, you know, I think it takes a while to um, it took a while for me to kind of like shift that focus. Um, but it is, I think, liberating to, not feel constrained you know. not try to be like your smallest self but instead to focus on like fueling yourself and being an an active self a very capable self and an energetic self you know like now I'm like okay even if I'm super busy and distracted and I'm not feeling like hungry during the day I'm like it's been several hours and I'm gonna go ahead and have a snack because like I'm not gonna have a great workout later. If I'm just kind of like, I'm going to focus on work and and ignore, um, you know, what my body might need. So it's that focus on like fueling, um, that has shifted as well.
2: I love that, you know, and it, and it goes back to what you were talking about that introception, that auto-regulation of you're learning to tune into your body, not just with the food, but how your body feels overall. What can I do to help my body feel the way I want to feel capable and with energy and with a clear mind, it's more than just the food we eat, but it's how we move instead of how I look. So that's, I love that. Thank you for sharing that Shannon. How about you?
3: I think I've been very fortunate in that I was introduced to sort of like the fitness world with a very positive role model in my life and that was my mum. So she's a personal trainer and I always viewed her as someone really strong and very fit. So that that for me was a huge motivator to learn more about working out and how to structure a training program. And I worked out with my mum for a very long time. So that was a really positive experience. And I didn't Never envisioned myself working in the fitness space. Um, my degrees in law—that was the direction that I was going in—and I didn't really. I never really wanted to be a personal trainer. It was something that I did for myself, like my exercise, which is something that I did to take care of myself. But then when I was in university, um, I had a breakup and I was really frustrated about the situation because he was unfaithful. And I was like, you know what? Operation Revenge Body. And then the, the workouts became a little bit more about I'm going to grow some muscle. I'm going to change how I look a little bit. I'll show him, um, which only kept me going for a little bit. I got a little bit more consistent with the gym. So I was very tired of university. I was working and trying to do law at the same time. So sometimes I would skip a gym session after the breakup. Up, I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going, um, I'm working out and I'm taking care of myself. Um, and, and that kept me going for a little bit and then I started to learn more and more about nutrition because I'd moved out I was cooking for myself I was doing my own food shop and I was like you know what I genuinely want to feel good about myself I want to be healthy and I want to take care of myself so that kind of put me on a path of learning and education and then I ended up doing my nutrition qualification at a time where I also went traveling so for me that was like letting go of a lot of routine Um, it was just like I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to get to a gym, sometimes I'm on an island and there there is no gym and I don't know what food's gonna be available. So I was thrown into the situation where I had to be very flexible, um, which I think has been a really positive thing for me overall. And then as I began to work with individuals, I did very much start with, okay, here are your macros, like this is what worked for me. Let's do what you know I assume everyone else needs and it was only with working with people that I began to see issues with that and again same as Gabrielle it's not to say that it doesn't work for anyone but the the issue is that it has become a default approach in the industry and that's why we tend to speak to that a little bit more and to um, talk about the value of weight neutral approaches to kind of rectify that imbalance that we see so again it's not that macro tracking doesn't work it's that everyone already knows how to do that so let's you know talk about the other options. Um, So with that, with working with people, what I actually began to realize is that having a knowledge of nutrition is actually insufficient to, to be a good coach, to even to be a good nutrition coach. And it's been kind of eye-opening to learn more about the intersection between physical health and mental health and I think that this may be another gap that Gabrielle and I will be looking to bridge in the future and there will be you know many challenges involved in that in defining like boundary scope and how we can correctly train people but there seems to be a great need for a a broader understanding of what it truly means to be healthy and there are a lot of sort of Psychological influences that can impact our nutrition behaviours, and that's something that we're hoping to address. So now my education has gone down the route of um, Gabrielle and I both have been trained in motivational interviewing, just as a communication style. Um, I've also done further education in acceptance and commitment training, dialectical behavioural therapy skills, Um, and I'm also currently studying interpersonal neurobiology, kind of to again bridge that gap between what it actually truly means to be healthy, and I think that interest in the intersection is not something that I would have stumbled upon without working with people and actually directly listening to what do you actually want? You know, what do you truly need? You want to feel better about yourself. That's why you've come to a nutritionist to lose weight because you think that that's kind of the answer. But actually there are a lot of things going on here. You know, we can spot sort of perfectionist tendencies that may be influencing the disordered eating behaviors, which is having an impact on your physical health and your psychological well-being. So how do we unpack this? And the answer is not a meal plan or a macro plan. And that's something that Gabrielle and I, again, we're looking to update the model. We always probably will be. Um, but hopefully we'll be speaking a lot more to that intersection between these different domains of health and what that means you know, to a coach and how we can help.
2: Mm. I just want to eat it up. My heart is leaping in gratitude. I love how smart both of y'all are. And what I love is how humble and conscientious you are because you went into coaching. You're like, all right, this worked for me. Let's do it for everybody. And when it didn't work for some people, you weren't just like dismissive, like, okay, well, you're doing it wrong or there's something wrong with you because obviously it's working for these people. So there's, it's your problem. You were open-minded enough to see like, huh, why? Why is it happening this way in this person? Why is it different? And it's because you're a loving, compassionate coach. So thank you so much. I'm so excited that both of y'all are in this space. But Shannon, I wanna go back to Because it doesn't sound to me, I mean, or maybe I'm just interpreting it this way. Do you feel like you have struggled with disordered eating or are you the kind of person that you were like, you can do the macros and it, it doesn't phase you. It doesn't put you into that disordered eating area. And it doesn't sound like the Operation Revenge Body was anything that kind of threw you in. That <laughs> sounds like really fun. But so, so tell me a little bit more as far as your personality. Do you feel like you're one of those people that someone can put on a, you know, calorie plan or a macro plan or something and it doesn't throw you into that area? And now for a very important message. Hey veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all, and don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode.
3: I don't think it would be the calorie plan or the macro plan that would throw me into that area. But having said that, Disordered eating, healthy eating behaviors, eating disorders—it's spectrum, and everyone is on that spectrum. Whether they're at the healthy eating end, or the disordered middle, or the eating disorder, and we can move between that different range. It's on that spectrum at any sort of point in time, and there will be times where my eating behaviors will fall into the healthier eating, not not in terms of a. um, eating healthy foods but just having a quote-unquote normal relationship with food which is kind of undefined but this ideal of what it means to have a healthy relationship with food and there'll be times where I would be more closer to that end and times where I can spot myself moving in towards what would be classified as disordered behaviors which could be times where I'm noticing that I'm thinking about food more often or times where I'm getting a little bit more rigid with my behaviors but usually Now that I've learned more about how this sort of works, I can identify what may be happening in my life and in my environment that would help me to sort of shift between these different sort of stages. So, for example, if I'm under a lot of stress, I've noticed that I then begin to control my um, workouts, control my eating a little bit more. And I I think it's coming from a place of, okay, well, this is something that I know I can take control over and it makes me feel good. So I get more frustrated if I miss a gym session for whatever reason. Um, So I, I think it's important to be aware that one, nobody is immune and two, that we can move between different ends of the spectrum at any point in time. And it's important to understand your own sort of influences, I think, so that you can spot when you're um, beginning to engage in some more disordered behaviors or cognitions, again, which could just be thinking about foods often or um, limiting yourself from certain foods, for example. Um, And it does relate to the training as well because exercise behaviors relate, can relate to our eating behaviors. So getting frustrated about missing a gym session could be um, something that can become disordered. You know, there's a healthy sense of guilt, but there's also then um, an unhealthy sense where you're sort of punishing yourself or thinking, oh, I had this large meal and I now should exercise as a result. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to realise your own sort of influences and stresses that can... Put you, move you along the spectrum. Um, and that's something that we try to address with our um, intentional eating webinars as well and the Bridging the Gap webinars so that we all have a, a greater understanding. And I think it's particularly important for health professionals to understand their own eating behaviors and attitudes and their own body image and how they may all sort of intersect because we're coaching through our own lens like we can't divorce our advice from our own experience we can just understand how our own experience may influence our advice and try to um, remove biases but it's impossible not to have your own experience in the back of your mind as you're giving advice to someone else so I think that that's something really important to consider as well
2: Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for your authenticity and your transparency on that and for reminding us that it is a spectrum because it's not all black and white. And that was just really well put and very balanced. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Let's move into, cause you mentioned the intuitive, the intentional eating. What is intentional eating? How do you define that either of you?
1: Uh, it is, in a nutshell, a nutritionally agnostic, anti-dogmatic approach to the ingestion of food. <laughs> that um, it meets a person at the intersection of their experiences, preferences, and goals, and it helps to um, it, it helps a, a person decide which approach might be best for them in their specific context. So we are trying to find the one that's going to be most effective and appropriate, but also the safest for them. And that we don't emphasize one approach over another wholesale. Um, And so it's a way that we can also uh, emphasize a client-centered approach, meeting a person where they are and allowing them to make an informed choice about their approach to nutrition, um, uh, providing providing them with the pros and cons. And also as coaches or health professionals that were aware of the appropriate utilization of each approach. So, for example, um, even though the term intuitive eating is colloquially used to just mean like not counting macros, uh, that isn't the accurate use. You know, intuitive eating TM, the one that is written about by Tribble and Resch, is a specific set of, of guideposts. And so we also are very um, careful and conscientious about the ways that we are using the terms so that people know exactly what we mean when we say, you know, intuitive eating versus mindful eating versus um, other forms of like internally regulated, but weight focused eating.
2: I love it. Thank you so much. How about diet? How would you define the term diet?
3: That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it depends on who you're asking. (laughs) Just as somebody's habitual food intake. But I think it's Mm -hmm. important to know who you're speaking to what their interpretation of the word diet means because that's where it gets confusing diet i think the word diet nowadays does have sort of negative connotations meaning sort of some restrictive temporary short-term thing that you're going to engage in purely for the purposes of losing weight that seems to be sort of like the common interpretation of the word and i think that has been a cause of a lot of confusion you know diets don't work but what are we talking about? Don't work for what? What's a diet? Like what do you mean? And I think like the that this is so frustrating because I think that the intention behind that um phrase is that intentionally modifying your restricting your food intake to modify your body composition probably is going to have detrimental effects on you in the long run. That's essentially what I interpret that claim to mean. And when put in that way I would agree. And the research seems to suggest that that is the case. And work for what? Weight reduction or health promotion? Because those two are not necessarily the same things as well. What if someone follows a diet, loses weight, but then has experienced some psychological impacts in terms of maybe they've developed disordered eating behaviors is that a success then what are we even talking about here so for gabrielle and i one of the aims of comprehensive coaching is to promote flourishing health which we envision to mean health in the broadest sort of sense of the words that incorporates physical psychological social and even sort of like a philosophical sort of spiritual component and for us if an intervention isn't promoting flourishing health then it's unsuccessful for the purposes of comprehensive coaching. So if somebody loses weight on a diet, but their social life has been impacted, their physical health is in, has been impacted because sometimes you know people can develop health consequences from being underweight that again is often not spoken about and um, their psychological well-being may be impacted then that diet in our view according to the comprehensive coaching model has been unsuccessful however somebody can engage in health-seeking behaviors improve their physical psychological social spiritual well-being and their body weight may reduce as a side effect of that, but we're not making that the primary focus, because by making that the primary focus, it can actually interfere with a lot of these processes. So if it's not sort of a primary sort of mediator of change it doesn't directly impact somebody's um, health outcomes in the way that we've defined health then why would that be a primary focus Let's focus on the um, behaviors that we can see from the research and from practice that directly impact your health in any one of these domains and see what happens to your body as a result it's perfectly understandable for individuals to feel that pressure to change their body. So this is why we don't want to discount the desire to lose weight either, because I think you're gonna miss you know who are going to turn off a large number of people who would really benefit from the, from the services um, and we have to understand the environment that we're living in again social cultural sort of influences of course we learn that hey my body is a social currency and you know if i change it maybe then i will gain approval and status but again the consequence potential consequences of that Um, are not something that Gabrielle and I want to endorse. And I would also, and I'm sure Gabrielle too, would like to challenge that sort of rhetoric that our body should be a social currency. So we don't want to feed into that. Um, which, again, can be a huge challenge. So that's kind of where the intentional eating spectrum has come in, recognizing that some approaches can be more internally guided, some can be externally guided, and we're also moving along a spectrum of weight modification and a weight neutral approach where we're kind of seeing, let's focus on these health-seeking behaviors, and your body may or may may not change. Let's see. You know, we're not discounting that, but we're not making it a primary focus.
2: Wow. I love the aim of obtaining flourishing health. I think that's just makes it so clear. How can we align things? What are the habits and behaviors that we can put into place to accomplish this goal rather than having the primary goal be, I want my body to look a certain way, but you're right. I mean, this requires so much patience and thoughtfulness. And both of you just are the, the right people for this because it's hard, because everybody just wants to lose weight. They're like, tell me what to do so that I can lose weight. i I worry about my well-being later. I mean, I'll worry about feeling better later, right? Let me just get thin or whatever now. And then I'll, I'll put that on the back burner for later. I know because I was there for decades, okay? I got decades of my life. So it is very, very complex um, to approach it in this thoughtful and patient way. But I'm, I'm just so glad that y'all are doing it. Tell me, so we talked about, you know, the difference between eating a diet and being on a diet, which is what most people are talking about, right? Being on a diet. And by age five, most little girls already know what it means to be on a diet, unfortunately, in our country, here in the United States. What is dietary restraint? Can you clarify that for us a little bit?
1: Sure. Dietary restraint um, would be the the cognitive effort that one puts into controlling their energy intake. And the tricky thing with with dietary restraint is that it doesn't necessarily translate to an actual energy deficit. So people are usually going on a diet um, ostensibly to lose weight. So they are trying to create some sort of energy deficit so that their weight will be lower by the end of The time. Whereas with, and so they're exerting uh, dietary restraint in order to control their dietary intake. But in some cases, they'll be trying to control their dietary intake, but it doesn't actually result in the energy deficit. So it could be that, you know, they're trying to um, eat only certain types of foods, or perhaps they have, you know, just inaccurately calculated the estimated energy intake needs. Um, or they are, um, you know, just eating foods that they think will be, um, health promoting or weight loss promoting, you know, they think that there are certain foods that have, you know, negative calories. And so the result is that they actually don't experience the weight loss. And so they think that they have to control even more rigidly. Um, And so they have this, this, this um, imbalanced ratio of like effort and attention um, versus results. But, you know, even if a person is accurate in their calculations, like weight loss is slow in many cases, and it is very difficult to maintain, if not potentially impossible beyond five years. And so people can um, be struggling, you know, and suffering under the weight of like this immense um, cognitive restraint, Um, and the risk for developing disordered eating is even higher in the people that are using rigid dietary restraint. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have a great a sense of clarity between the rigid and flexible forms of dietary restraint and there could be some forms of flexible dietary restraint that um, actually uh, do still increase the risk of disordered eating um, because there's about a 50 percent shared variance between the two um, so even though you know flexible dieting has been promoted as sort of a, a more reasonable or like safer way you know it's kind of like you can you know you don't have to Pick just, you know, just one type of fish and just asparagus and just brown rice. Like you can pick different types of proteins and vegetables and brown rice, uh, but you still have to hit your macros. You know, so so it's not that that is um, that 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 method is impervious um, to to the risks of, um, you know, developing disordered eating. And even, you know, again, with the flexibar- flexible restraint methods, maybe a person, um, you know, sort of decides, oh, I've had uh, quite a large breakfast. I might eat a little bit less later in the day. It's not so much the behavior it is, as it is the cognition behind the behavior. If it's just that they're eating a little bit less later in the day because they don't feel hungry, they just think, oh, I'm still pretty full. I'm. It's been five or six hours. I should probably have a snack, but I'm not feeling terribly hungry. Um, that might be on the um, spectrum of, uh, of eating pathology that's on the healthier side because they are just responding to their bodily cues. Whereas a person could do um, what looks to be the same behavior. I ate a big breakfast, I'm going to eat a much smaller meal later, but they're actually doing that in a compensatory way to still at the end of the day end up in an energy deficit. And that would be um, on the, towards the other end of the spectrum, potentially leading towards a, a, a pathology. So it's kind of like, we have to look at both the, the behavior. There are some behaviors that are very obviously more on the, the pathological side, like purging. Um, but some behaviors are in this gray area where we really have to understand what's going on uh, for that person, why they made that decision to determine whether it's a potentially risky behavior for them.
2: Yeah. It's so interesting, too, because I'm a pediatrician. So working in pediatrics, you see how quickly some of these habits that we have, you know, some of the things that we do in our culture with diet culture, how it rubs off on kids and kids start practicing dietary restraint. Sometimes they don't even realize why they're doing it. They're just like, Oh, I heard that this is bad for me. So I'm just going to start avoiding it. And you know, slippery slope, one thing leads to another. And for sometimes it's not, it has nothing to even do with weight. It just has to do with like, Oh, now I have a fear of this food because I heard it's bad. And then they start practicing that dietary restraint. So the human mind is so interesting when it comes to things like that. Hey humans, I know you want to eat healthier, but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients green chef sends organic fresh produce and chef design recipes in every box for satisfying nourishing and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine find recipes for every lifestyle including plant-based diets green chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients including low added sugar and sodium smart options You get to choose from 80 plus flavor packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. Try 15 plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped and custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. They also provide the recipe cards and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow and everything you need is included, so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events. Hello, spring! And time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals To put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com forward slash I am human50 and use code I am human50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use the code I am human five zero to get fifty percent off plus twenty percent off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a by women and for women company, and they now offer a nutrient dense green powder called Daily NutriGreens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutri-Greens and we loved it. The Daily Nutri-Greens contain an immune antioxidant, and detox blend along with prebiotics, probiotics and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients such as B12, iron, zinc and selenium. The Daily Greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal or your baked goods. The Daily NutriGreens are vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO. And another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the Apple Banana Daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste. And I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink, integrate it into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have time to- Time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens, head to myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, that's D R Y A M I, for 15% off Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, D R Y A M I, at checkout for 15% off site wide today. I'd love also to delve into this uh, common term that we hear now because being on a diet has gotten a bad reputation, right? We don't want to be on a diet. So now we just want to do a lifestyle change. (laughs) And I've seen many a lifestyle change and I'm just like, eh, (laughs) that seems kind of rigid. So tell me about why a lifestyle change and what are the signs that a lifestyle change really is just more of this dieting behavior?
3: Yeah, that's such a funny one because this really touches on what you just mentioned is how we sort of pick up and model certain behaviors um and we're not really sure why we're doing it or how our motivations for doing certain behaviours may change over time. So for example, oh, okay, I didn't realise that my latte has calories in it. I didn't consider the fact that that is a source of energy. I just thought I was drinking a coffee. Maybe I will alternate between Americanos and lattes depending on how much energy I think I may require. That can soon turn into I shouldn't drink any um, beverages with calories in them. So I'm always going to order a black coffee and tell myself I I love coffee. When the reality is, I would just prefer to have a latte. That, that <laughs> sort of potentially could have been a health conscious behaviour, just awareness and regulating according to your own needs, can soon turn into a rule. And I think that this is um, a nice way to conceptualise, you know, the idea of when do these healthy dietary or lifestyle changes become um, something that's not so healthy or become a diet is when we turn our guidelines for healthy living into rigid rules. So in general, a guideline that I follow is my weightlifting program is structured into four days a week. So a guideline for me is I'm going to resistance train for four days a week. A rigid rule would be I must Uh, resistance train for four days a week no matter what so if I got ill for one week and I was following my guidelines I might think you know what paying attention to my body is probably not a good idea for me to train this week I'm actually going to focus on resting maybe I'll go for a walk to get some fresh air get some movement in but that's what my body needs this week whereas if I was following these healthy um, lifestyle changes as a a rigid rule I would be in the gym no matter what because that's what I need to do in order to, to be healthy which actually could be the opposite of what I need. And that kind of um, can translate onto our eating behaviors as well. Maybe I learned that, you know what, maybe I don't need breakfast early in the morning, I don't have much of an appetite, and I like to work. So I'll push off my first meal for a couple of hours. That could be um, something that is actually according to my body's cues, or it could be a sort of rule that I've imposed upon myself that if I notice I'm starting to get hungry earlier than usual oh I can't have my first meal yet because it's not this time of day and I can only eat past this time of day so I think it's the actually it's the flexibility or inflexibility behind these behaviors that's really at the core of this and this is where the construct of inflexible eating has um, recently been touched upon by, by the research and that's sort of A rigid adherence to these rules and a sense of distress when they're not followed. So, oh no, I can't eat this early, even though I feel kind of hungry, because it's a rule. And if I were to eat earlier, that would cause distress. I'll be thinking about restricting later on. What if I get hungry later on? I'm going to be eating too many calories. So, I'm either going to restrict myself on the food or I give in and feel distressed. So um, it's the the rule-based behavior and the rigid adherence to those rules and the distress that accompanies breaking those rules. That's where I think we can learn to distinguish between my healthy lifestyle versus, no, this is just another diet.
2: And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now, back to the episode. Yes, oh, I love how you just really concisely define that, especially paying attention to your mental health surrounding these things. You know, like, am I feeling guilty? Am I feeling shame? If I am not rigidly following what I think is healthy, then maybe there might be something that I need to pay attention to. I think that that's really important. Okay. So we've kind of already been talking about this, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more. We have these two communities. We have the anti-diet all diets are bad, very harmful community. And then we have the, no, everybody needs to count calories and eat less because we all eat too much. And so we have these two communities. Um, but the way that y'all talk about it is more like, okay, we there's a spectrum and we need to um, definitely understand what the risks and the harms could be. But try to move in between these two areas a little bit more. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that's like or how you would approach that in an, in an individual and the client?
1: So kind of trying to meet them where they are and work in the gray area and how we can, um, how we can provide like both services simultaneously. Like how can we, how can we provide, um, intentional weight loss, that's kind of, that's the term I forgot I was going to mention that. So because diet can be very confusing, I, we just use the term intentional weight loss So, or, or weight focused. So intentional weight loss means a person is losing weight on purpose, and they are doing behaviors with um, the intention that that will result in weight loss. Whereas unintentional weight loss can occur, like it Shannon had mentioned earlier, when a person has changed their behaviors for um, not for the purposes of, of changing their body weight, but it just so happens that that occurs. Um, so the, the idea that the analogy that I use um, when talking about um, providing uh, informed consent and, and m- mitigating risk with intentional weight loss is that of sex ed. So there are some um, camps that say it, we should have abstinence only sex education where we just tell people it just don't have sex. And then there are other camps that say we need to provide education about ways to reduce risk while having sex. And there's no way that we can make sex a completely risk free um, event if it's happening between two people. And so how can we provide education so that they know how to do it in like, the safest way possible? And so that's my approach with intentional weight loss is to um, help a person realize what it is they really want to get. Like what is this a means to an end that's actually going to be achievable from intentional weight loss? Or are there other avenues that we could explore, you know, when it comes to like improving body image, when it comes to um, having more self-confidence, intentional weight loss does not guarantee those things. Where might we need to use intentional weight loss? Need I use loosely, but like say we have a weight class athlete and they have, they have a qualified for an event at a specific weight class. And since that time, their weight has increased and they still, in order to compete, they have to compete at the lower weight class. Okay. In that case, This person really wants to compete. It's very, very important to them. So how can we ensure that we're allowing them to provide informed consent about the risks of intentional weight loss and the realities of um, how maintainable that amount of weight loss is going to be? And then how can we get them to that place in the safest way possible Um, by encouraging these protective factors, like, you know, maintaining social support and um, focusing on uh, analysis rather than like compliance to, you know, the specific macros. So if it was difficult to hit the macros this week, why was that? I'm still encouraging them to respond to their internal cues to meet their needs effectively, you know, whether that's through food or perhaps, um, you know, helping them identify what it is they actually need if it's like an emotional need. So that's my that's my take on like the intentional weight loss is that we can help people do that while mitigating risk we can't we can't remove the risk entirely and that we really want to be we want to be transparent and we want to help them set realistic expectations about the actual effects of weight loss and and the realities of maintenance, which are that we can probably say like people can maintain an average of maybe like Five uh, percent of their net weight loss, maybe for up to five years, um, and that's kind of being generous. And that's just based on you know long term data that we've um, found from from people who've pursued intentional weight loss. And that if a person wants to improve metabolic markers, that's a potential outcome, but it really requires relatively um, small percentage of weight loss. And that when we're working with a person who is already at um, you know a, a, a body composition that uh and and a health status that are like all clear there's no there there's nothing happening metabolically this person is already active um that further weight loss probably convey, conveys no additional benefits to them and and that what I think um what we're really talking about uh on on either side is that people are looking at the cost to benefit ratio of intentional weight loss. And, and especially just sort of like with, with certain body sizes in mind. And one group kind of says the, the risks, the psychological risks outweigh the benefits, the, the potential health benefits. And what the other side says, the potential health benefits outweigh the psychological risks. And of course, that whether the, the truth to either one of those statements probably depends on, it, it depends on the individual that we're actually talking about. Um, but I think when we're looking at sort of like, if we sort of generalize by extremes, we say that there is a person who has identified that weight loss would improve like their mobility, you know, then we still, of course, are going to focus on just on focus on the behaviors that we can acknowledge, okay, this person believes that like weight loss would really help with their mobility with reducing knee pain or something. And then on the other side, we were working with a person who is already healthy and, and and weight loss would not have any sort of physical benefit to them, then we're really just looking at like potential psychological risk and like no real potential benefit for that person. So I think when we can look at it like that and say, like, what are the potential physical benefits and the phys- and potential health benefits versus the risks? And we're looking at sort of the extremes, we can kind of clarify that a little bit more readily. Of course, we're mostly working in the gray, and so it's really hard to say you know, that about a whole group of people. But when we're working with one person, helping them to identify, like, what what is my risk-to-benefit ratio of intentional weight loss? And can I reach my, my goals in a different way? Like, is weight loss the only thing that's going to get me to a better place in my life? In most cases, the answer is no. In most cases, it's just that we have been socialized and we have internalized the idea that weight loss is the way to be happier and more confident and more fulfilled. It's that social currency. And so a lot of the work is helping people um, build new narratives for themselves that, hey, actually I can, I'm a worthy person right now and like I can live an abundant life right now. And gosh, like life gets a lot better when I save some of my mental space and energy for things that I really enjoy and give myself the permission to not have to focus so much on my diet and exercise.
2: Oh, that was so well said. Thank you so much for describing that and taking us through that process of how you think about that. And as a physician, I will tell you that I have believed for a long time that whenever we are counseling patients on intentional weight loss, I love that term as well, I'm going to start using that, it should be an informed consent process. It really must be an informed consent process. So I love how you're just fleshing this out and and really exploring it in a way that's going to be most beneficial to people. Can you tell me about the risks associated with intentional weight loss? What is it that you talk to people about? I know you talked about it in the webinar. What are the potential risks associated with it?
3: Yeah, when it comes to making weight a primary focus, I would like to actually just add to something that Gabrielle said, because um, I was thinking about this as you were talking, that yes, there are instances where intentional weight loss um, may be necessary in the context so somebody who's engaging in a weight class sport well the rules of the sport dictate that this person they've chosen to compete in this weight division therefore they must focus on weight loss to, to making it to their sport or physique competitions require um, the modification of body composition so those are two very um, specific examples where intentional weight loss would be a, a primary goal outside of those contexts it's very often the case that intentional weight loss can be harmful in the sense that we've got the psychological risks, you know, in terms of potentially developing disordered eating behaviours, which they then may even develop into full blown eating disorders, which can affect physical and psychological well-being and social health as well. Because, again, food is something that we share culturally with people. Hey, you want to meet up for, for lunch? You know, oh, no, sorry, I can't because I don't know what, what's on the menu. I don't know the macro. So I'm just going to make excuses to, to not go. Um, So it really can impact sort of all areas of our life. But there will be situations where... There is someone who is presenting sort of very low in risk. They don't necessarily have perfectionist tendencies um, and they just want to sort of engage in intentional weight loss because they've decided, they've internalized these sort of cultural narratives that, you know what, I think my life would improve if I lost five more pounds. Well, I could screen this person and see that, you know what, they probably would be okay, but I still don't want to have that as part of my practice because I don't want to personally feed into that cultural narrative. Even if this one person could engage in intentional weight loss and not see any quote-unquote negative uh, physical or psychological side effects, how that person then thinks about themselves and thinks about other people is going to influence sort of society at large and have an impact on those people who wouldn't benefit from intentional weight loss. So for for me, even if someone, one individual could safely engage in these behaviours, that's not something that I want to choose to endorse. But I'm very clear that it's not that intentional weight loss may be harmful for everyone, but actually even if it's beneficial for or just doesn't have, I wouldn't even say beneficial, but just doesn't have any negative side effects for that person, doesn't mean that it doesn't have negative side effects for everyone, because that person is now a part of, sort of, society and will be, sort of, endorsing that idea that, you know what, I did feel better when I lost weight and therefore, the way that I view other people is going to is gonna change. Um, so, to, to answer the, the question as to, sort of, like, the risks involved, um, we know that by you've got the the biological sort of side effects that come from um hormonal changes when you are in a state of prolonged energy restriction which can then feed into sort of that desire to eat you know preoccupation with food, which can then, as we say, manifest in some of these disordered behaviors, which impacts, I think, at the core, how someone sort of views themselves. And when someone begins to struggle with their eating behavior, the, the common attitude is, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm lazy. I have no discipline, which really doesn't make, is so black and white Because even if someone is struggling with sort of a loss of control over their eating behaviours, right, that's not to say that they're not disciplined in other areas of their life. But we as a society can view someone's physical body and we attribute characteristics and personality traits to that person based on their physical appearance. We don't know how disciplined that person is with their relationships, with their family, with their work life. All we can see is, oh, that person, you know, isn't eating right. And we're not taking into consideration the other impacts that can influence someone's decision to eat, such as, you know, there's a lot of talk about food poverty and um, the sort of health inequities. Well, nobody chose, nobody on this earth chose to be born into the family that they were born into at this moment in time, at this location in the world, and they didn't choose sort of their environment, right? And that actually has such a large impact on um, how we behave and how we think, And what I really disagree with is in the fitness industry, somebody who has seen great benefits to um, getting, you know, taking charge of their physical health and changing their body composition, whatever. And they use their body as like a trophy to um, illustrate their characteristics. You know, I'm so dedicated. Um, Look at me. Look how strong I am. Well, What do we even mean by strength and dedication? Again, we're just talking about eating and exercising. We're not talking about life as a whole. You know, you could be very dedicated to your gym routine and neglecting your work, neglecting your family because gym comes first. Is that the ideal that I want to promote? No. So enjoy your body. Awesome. But don't think that that makes you better than. And I think that's really what it gets to at the core, because again, individuals who aren't in the same circumstances, who face different barriers, then as a consequence, internalize the idea that I am lesser than because I haven't achieved what this other person has achieved. And that to me doesn't make any sense because it's impossible to quantify the worth of an individual because who's to decide what makes someone worthy, what counts for how much and how we add up all these different variables to then judge everyone else based on this. It's impossible. So I think the only sensible thing would be to start with, everyone is equally worthy and we're just working on improving ourselves or self-development, self-care, Because it enhances our life, not because we need to do it to prove our worth, which is why I think it's very important for me personally, and I'm sure Gabrielle as well, is like, even if this was safe for someone, I don't want to endorse the idea that they're a better person because they've now achieved this physique, because that affects other people too. And that's the sort of narrative that we would like to challenge. So I really do believe, and the evidence would kind of suggest this, that a weight neutral approach actually probably should be the default for the majority of the population outside of these specific contexts that we've mentioned for the purposes of flourishing health promotion and also just our own sort of philosophical beliefs as to, you know, what actually makes people good people, it's not their appearance. You know, that's not something that we have direct control over either. We can only control the behaviours anyway. So it just doesn't make any sense, really. Um, and that's something that we truly want to promote is that that sort of feeling of shame that someone internalises because they don't have the same quote unquote self-control or discipline as someone else actually becomes a barrier to, to health seeking behaviours. And everyone deserves to... Um, maximize their innate capacities to achieve flourishing health and that's not a look you know that would look different on everyone so we're trying to really focus on you know that at the core and mitigating a lot of these um, potential you know uh, the harm that can occur whilst also acknowledging i've got to meet this client where they're at they desire intentional weight loss so how can we navigate that as well knowing that actually intentional weight loss the behaviors involved and the cognitions involved with that can actually impede a lot of the work that may be involved in directly improving someone's body image, for example, which may require less body checking, which doesn't go hand in hand with monitoring progress for weight loss. So there are just instances where it doesn't become compatible. And if we're trying to help people to be healthier and to feel like they belong, to feel like they accept themselves then weight loss as a primary focus doesn't make any sense when you understand the mechanisms of change.
1: Mm.
2: Ugh, So, so good. So good. I, I want to just make one comment too, which I know that this is probably part of the coaching and how you talk to clients, but even for those people that have chosen to be in a sport where they require monitoring their bodies, there's always choice there too, right? They could choose to not participate in that sport or participate in a different weight class or something if they feel that it is interfering with their life and their well-being and their joy. I mean, you could absolutely not do that anymore. Same thing goes for stuff that we complain about all the time that a lot of people use that to trigger them to um, go on a diet for intentional weight loss. Like say your clothes don't fit anymore. Like you're in a different phase of life. You could choose to buy bigger clothes. That is a choice, right? So I think that's something um, for everybody to just keep in mind is that most of the time we think in this black and white okay we can either do this thing or this thing but there there are choices and in the human experience we have different choices in order to reach that well-being and joy that we desire in life. This has been so wonderful. I thank you so much and I know that you're both busy so I want to wrap it up. Um, just a few final questions I want to hear from each of you on this one. What do you wish more people knew?
1: um that if you think that you are not doing enough and you're comparing yourself to the person next to you, that person is also thinking that, and they're also doing it, and so I think it helps us all to have a charitable perspective for ourselves and for those around us.
3: Beautiful, thank you. I would be speaking to sort of fitness professionals or healthcare professionals with this and I wish that everyone knew that you can run a viable business without selling fat loss because I think that that is a concern for a lot of health professionals as well everyone wants this which is probably accurate you know the primary motivator for a lot of people is appearance modification or esteem reasons that's why they seek out health services but there is a way to to meet someone where they are at and even help them through engaging in behaviors that you um, can see the harm in you know that's part of the process sometimes so this came to mind because I actually have been working with an individual who competes in boxing which is a weight class sport and um, does experience disordered eating behaviors and tendencies and she's also been seeking therapy for this as well, but continues to make that intentional choice to choose this sport. And she understands how that impacts her eating behaviors. But we still work together on this. As a way to help her, we've been working on other things in terms of developing compassion to understand her situation, also for her to understand why competing is so important to her. What is the value in that? Because there's a reason that you're doing that despite the consequences. So we're really helping her to understand that and how to sort of mitigate that harm, especially post-fight. So again, when we're talking about meeting someone where they're at and promoting, you know, weight neutral approaches, that doesn't mean that you will not actually in practice be helping someone whilst they're doing something that may potentially be causing them harm because that's a part of the process to get to sort of that stage of awareness and then the understanding of what truly is important to me and how can I get the benefits from what I'm seeking from this sport, for example, whilst also mitigating some of the harm. So again, it's not that you'll never be helping someone to intentionally lose weight because it will often start there, and then it may shift, the focus may shift, and the goalposts may change during the coaching process but that's a process that takes time um so yeah to, to get back to the question what i wish people would know is that you don't have to if you don't agree with it if you resonate with a lot of what gabrielle and i have been speaking to today you can ch- challenge the cultural narrative by not feeding into the here's here's fat loss and I can help you do that. That's what you want. And actually offer a different service because people don't know what's available to them. Of course, fat loss is the answer because that's what we're sold all of the time. How about a a different approach for those that have recognized that they've been spinning their wheels for a long time? You know, and maybe it's not them that's faulty, but actually it's because they haven't taken an approach that is actually going to help them in their specific context and and scenarios. So yeah, I wish health professionals would know that there are ways to still run a viable business and help people in a way that you truly sort of resonate with, without feeding into cultural narratives.
2: Yes. Oh, thank you for that. It's true. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and coaches and fitness professionals out there, especially if you're on social media, seems like that's all you see is people with all of these followers because they're selling get thin, quick (laughs) scheme or whatever it is, you know? And I think it is hard for some to be like, okay, well, I guess I just have to be like that. I just have to join the rest of the team and and do that. But there are other options. And you're right. I think we're in a day and age where I'm also feeling very passionate about changing this, this model that we have. How can we push against that? And not in this like, angry way that I'm seeing because it's just such a like combative, angry, defiant way. Um, but that's also just not my personality type personally for me. Um, but in this manner that y'all are approaching patient, thoughtful, let's come together. Let's sit at the same table. Let's have these discussions and let's, let's talk about the evidence, which is also very important and weigh the risks and benefits. Because when you look at that, it's, it just seems so much more rational. You're weighing the risks and benefits because when it comes to these topics, when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to like, y'all are talking about the social currency, it's so emotional, isn't it? It's so emotional. Your brain gets clouded with the emotion I've, I've wanted to be, I, I read my journal starting from when I was 12. I've wanted to lose 30 pounds since I was 12 years old. Since I was 12 years old, I mean, probably before that, because I started dieting at nine, but specifically it was like this magical number, this fantasy number of 30, you know? And so this is very emotional for a lot of people, but whenever you put it into this more rational decision-making process. These are the risks and benefits. Let's be patient. Let's be thoughtful. Let's go along this journey together. Let's test it out for you as an individual. It's just so beautiful. So thank you so much. I know that a lot of people want to follow you now and see what you're doing. So please tell us about what services and products you offer and how my listeners can connect with you.
1: Sure. So I am on Instagram and Facebook at vitamin PhD and my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com and Shannon and I have a shared website that's btgcomprehensivecoaching.com and I'll let Shannon tell you about her also. (laughs) She has an individual website. Um, So I provide um, coaching and consulting because part of what I do is centered around gut health. And also mentorships. So um, I work with clients one on one for lifestyle coaching. I think nutrition coaching probably doesn't really (laughs) adequately explain what it is we're doing, Um, but I help people to live more authentically. And often that starts with their relationship um, with food, because that's often a manifestation of their relationship with themselves. Um, And then um, we work again toward flourishing health using the comprehensive coaching model. And that is what I uh, mentor coaches for as well. Beautiful.
3: Yeah. And um, similarly to to Gabrielle, I work with people one-on-one. And yeah, as a lifestyle or a health coach, because we do address sort of social, psychological, um, emotional well-being as well. Um, And I also mentor other coaches, so to to help them with the applications of the comprehensive coaching model and how they can sort of help their clients to achieve more meaningful changes um, and address the issues with sort of business and and that side of things too. Um, I also have created a course for health professionals, a body image fundamentals course to help help, uh, health professionals to improve their clients' body image. Um, so that's something that's available now and I also have um, a podcast where I've been recently interviewing um, a lot of researchers on the field of body image and sort of Psychology in general, in terms of what it means to be mentally healthy. You know, we talk about mental illness, but not about the promotion of mental health, which would be distinct. Um, and I've recently had the opportunity to um, interview a lot of the researchers on the editorial board for the the Body Image Journal. So uh, we're talking about sort of um, intervention strategies and how that may apply to a, a coaching sort of setting. Um, so the podcast is called Consilience, and I think that will be linked in um, as well. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. We also have a community group for coaches who love the idea of this approach but then like I have no idea how to transition from my current stage of this is what I have been doing but now I realize there's so much more that I could be doing so we have um, a community group that you can access on the the BTG website Um, and it's been really great to kind of bring together a community of like-minded coaches who are now beginning to sort of help each other as well so there's been zoom calls about authentic marketing strategies to you know move away from the the before and after transformation photos to how can i actually market myself in a way that reaches people but is aligned with my own sort of personal values and the culture that i want to sort of create and promote so that would be another thing that i would recommend people checking out Um, and you can also follow me on instagram as well and that's just shannon beer underscore
2: I love it. Wow. Y'all are doing so much good work. Thank you so much again. I am so grateful for both of you and your approach and putting this out into the world. I know it's so much hard work to do all of this, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So last question before I let y'all go, leave us with one piece of advice for moms specifically struggling with body image and body dissatisfaction.
1: I would borrow from one of our self-compassion exercises. And I might recommend um, trying to speak to yourself um, as you would hope that your child would speak to themselves, you know, so especially if you do have a daughter and you notice yourself speaking about your body in ways that are really negative and critical, um, and you wouldn't want her to do that. Try to model um, a a kind um, and understanding voice for yourself so that your your child can see that as well.
0: Yes. Uh, I love that.
3: I love that. I would encourage um yeah, as Gabrielle said, that compassionate understanding that is Perfectly be normal to experience changes in your body image after a pregnancy as well that's something that a lot of mums go through Um, but also to try to reflect on all of the things that your body does for you functions that your body performs that you really appreciate and this doesn't mean just your physical capabilities in terms of you know I I love the fact that I can be strong in the gym because maybe gym's not a priority for you right now Um, but understanding that your body does a lot you know you've just given birth to a new life like regardless of how your body looks as a result you know that that's something that you can appreciate like this capacity to to introduce new life into the world is amazing and understanding that you know these cultural influences may be putting like a bit of a dampener on that but also even beyond that the the fact that you've got your health that you've been able to to recover that you're um, able to connect and communicate with others through your body, you know, the fact that you can hug and hold your child, or to, to kiss and, and celebrate with your partner, the fact that you can be a, sol- a shoulder to, to cry on and a source of support to other people, um, what about your creative endeavours, you know, maybe you love to, to read, or you love to listen to music, the fact that you have a body allows you to do all of these things, it's your sort of medium to experience the world and what would your life be like if you didn't have the ability to to cuddle your partner or to be a shoulder to cry on or to to be outside to view like the amazing sights that you've seen throughout your life so that's an exercise that I would really recommend um, and appreciating our bodies and reflecting on that seems to be a very effective way to move towards developing more of a positive body image Um, and also practicing body image flexibility so on those days where you wake up and you're not feeling super great knowing that that's actually normal and having a positive body image doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to love yourself and feel great every day that's not the case what's more important is what you do on those days where you're not feeling 100% and that you don't let the oh you know what I'm feeling a little bit bloated right now I just don't feel my best you don't let those thoughts impact what you do in that day so you don't withdraw from it activities because of how you look. you acknowledge that I'm not feeling my best, you know what? Maybe I've been up late because of the kids and that's impacting me you know how I feel about myself today. but I'm not gonna let that get in the way of doing what's important to me. So I'd say the, the self-compassion, the functionality appreciation and the body image flexibility could be three key things to really think about and to explore and um, to help move towards developing a bit more of a positive body image.
2: Thank you so much for that. And yes, I think that's a really good reminder that body image is not fixed. Just like our emotions are not fixed, body image fluctuates. And there is even studies to show that our body image changes with our hormonal fluctuations. It really does change our thoughts and our feelings so you know sometimes even for no reason you may not feel good about yourself and some of it has to do with the hormones that are changing in your um your body and your brain so thank you both so much for this it's been amazing again i appreciate what you do would love to have you back sometime and thank you so much have a very plantastic day
1: thank you you too
2: wow i i loved that conversation I hope you did too and I love these ladies. They're doing such amazing work. <laughs> I mean, I- I'm just really fascinated by how they've been able to develop the model that they're doing, work with clients in this way, and this balanced and thoughtful way. The only other thing I would add to our conversation, which believe me, I could have talked to these ladies for hours and hours more. I feel like we could just really sit down and nerd out about all of this and have really amazing discussions. But the one thing that I would, I wanted to talk about a little bit was the reality that even if we all ate and exercised and did everything exactly the same, we would not look the same. There really is a genetic component to body size and body composition and and all of these things. And so I think that's really important to keep in mind whenever we're thinking about intentional weight loss or intentionally changing our body composition is that we're all different and in some ways there might be privilege associated with that right like some people really are naturally lean some people are naturally larger bodied people i know especially from my experience now with adding muscle i add muscle quickly. And to the point where my husband's a little jealous because we go, we do all our weight training together and everything on me pops out way faster than on him. So that's a genetic difference, you know? So we have to be aware of that. And we have to really consider that when we're making these choices about ourselves, what can your body do? What is the genetic potential of your body within the habits and behaviors that are going to lead to your well-being? What What are those things that you can do to feel good? And then you just wait and see what your body does, you know? I mean, I think that that's um, that's one way that I would look at it too. You know, there was more questions I wanted to ask them. Hopefully I can have them back again in the future. But I think that this was such a fabulous conversation. Just remembering that when it comes to intentional weight loss, there are true risks associated with that. If you feel that you would benefit from it physically, medically, or whatever, how can you balance those risks and benefits so that you minimize the risks, but is there a way that you can do it even without having to focus on the weight loss itself? And that's what I talk about a lot. How can we talk about optimizing these habits, these health promoting behaviors, be consistent, not rigid about it, not associated with guilt or shame if you don't do it, but consistency so that over time, you see what happens. What happens to your body? What happens to your well-being? Your metabolic markers, all of those things. Another wonderful, wonderful episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I really hope you like this one. I hope it made you think a little bit. Again, reach out to me, Yami at dryami.com. If you have any feedback, if you liked it, let me know. If you didn't like it, let me know. If you disagreed with everything we said, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts as we explore these complex topics. Thank you, veggie lovers.